Welcome to the J. Kim Show. This is your host, J. Kim. I am an investor, author, and fitness entrepreneur. And for the first time in Asia, I sit down with the world's most brilliant minds in business, investing, and entrepreneurship. You'll learn all the secrets, strategies, and formulas to becoming a successful entrepreneur directly from the masters. If this is your first time listening, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week with the goal of providing actionable insight to you, the listener, with every single episode. And now, on to the show. We have another special episode for you. Today's show guest is somewhat of a celebrity in the tech world. His name is Kevin Kelly, and he is one of the co-founders and editors of Wired Magazine. Wired Magazine is the premier magazine that focuses on how emerging technologies affect culture, the economy, and politics. Kevin is also the author of several best-selling books, his most recent being a New York Times bestseller called The Inevitable, where he discusses the 12 technological forces that will shape our future. We go over a lot in this episode, from his views on education, he didn't go to high school or college, the value of travel, the next biggest thing in China, and what it means to have a thousand true fans. And of course, we talk about what we can expect to happen with technology in the future. This is such a good episode, touches on a lot of big topics, but I know you guys will get a lot of value out of it. Let's get on to the show. Kevin, thank you so much for joining the show today. We're very excited to have you on, uh, and we appreciate your time. It's my pleasure. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So for this is kind of interesting because um, I feel like a lot of the listeners out here might have actually heard of you because you have a very uh, unique relationship with Asia. But uh, perhaps for those who are listening and that, that don't know who Kevin Kelly is, you could give us a little quick intro. Who's Kevin Kelly? What do you do for a living? Um... I package ideas. Um, I was, uh, I mostly view myself as an editor. I was editor and publishers of the Whole Earth Review, which was the Whole Earth Catalog's uh, ongoing publication. I got involved in um, one of the co founders of Wired Magazine, mm. um, which is still going, although I don't edit it any longer. And I write books and run a website and the books are about technology and what they mean uh and the websites are about tools cool tools my current project that i'm working on this year is called vanishing asia Mm. which is uh documenting the disappearing traditions customs festivals of asia between uh turkey and japan that's fascinating. I think that uh, being Asian myself and living in Asia currently, I think that uh, that's often overlooked. Uh, we, we're also focused on the future and and where that's going, and, and we forget what is disappearing, I guess, behind us. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I yeah. go to China a lot, and I, I do a lot of speaking in Asia, and I'm there to learn what Asians have in mind for us in the future because I think they're going to decide. At the same time, I'm documenting what's lost, and I'm not really nostalgic about it. It's um, I understand why it's being left behind, but I just find a beauty in it that I'm trying to capture. Right. So let's uh, let's let's dig way back. You used to be a uh, photographer, is that right? And and through that, 
occupation, so to speak, you you did extensive traveling in Asia when you were younger. Uh, was was that sort of the reason yeah. that you have this sort of connection with Asia? Yes, uh, it's kind of the first place I went to outside of my little parochial area in New England, and. Um, in early 70s, I first went to Taiwan and then Japan and Korea, Philippines. Went later on to Southeast Asia, Central or Central South Asia, and um, West went westward eventually, Iran and Turkey. And um, it was my it was my college, my graduate degree, my awakening um those first journeys were just so mind-blowing it's particularly at that um era in in asia itself which was in transformation um and so uh i gave myself the uh, self-assignment to um photograph in asia um and i had almost no money but i had a lot of time <laughs> and I uh, traveled everywhere, and it was a very, very special moment in the world when um, someone like me with almost no money could journey pretty easily to um, places that were still living in the medieval 15th century and hadn't really changed. Uh, before that time, you needed a kind of like an expedition and permits and stuff to get there. And then after that time, of course, anybody can get there, but things had already changed. But there was this moment when things were unchanged, right, poised in the past. And then I could take a, a bus or a Jeep or somehow and get there and um, see this before it just kind of vanished. That so, was really special. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, <laughs> it, it's like you were... A, a nomad, digital nomad before there, that term really existed. Uh, so. Yeah, and I was very undigital. I mean, I was carrying 500 rolls of analog film <laughs> in my backpack. Analog nomad. <laughs> exactly. I had. Um, I would have died for a digital camera to do what they they did, but um, it was strictly analog, and I, I literally that had a backpack that had almost nothing in it except for film, um, and taking care of that, mining it, you know, um, because it couldn't get too hot. And there was this, it was just this incredible headache getting it back and not losing him. Um, what was, you know, a minor chore in itself. Uh, and so it was a very analog world, nothing digital about it. I, I was traveling, I was a young kid, you know, early 20s. And my parents had no idea even what country I was in. There was very little ways to communicate with them. I'd write, you know, a, a, a letter every now and then. There was no phones. There was no telegraph. Of course, there was no messaging. And so um, it was as undigital as you could imagine. <laughs> and how how did you – were your parents supportive of you just taking off and uh, you, you've you've spoken before extensively uh, advocating travel and this sort of thing. Um, you know, I follow your work, I've followed it for a while. Um, but you know, there's always the, the there's always the conversation that you have to have with your parents, and obviously, uh, you know, people 
still value the institution of education and especially in Asian culture, uh, it's seen as sort of uh, a must do. What was that conversation like with your parents and were they supportive or was there any sort of fallout or I mean, how did, how, yeah, how did um, you make that decision? Well, I, I went to a school where mm, 95%, 98% of the kids would go on to college. So, and then we moved to this one town, uh, a suburb of New York City. With that idea, um, I mean, my parents' idea, they were, they were both college graduates at a time when not that many people were. Um, and they totally expected that. My dad worked for uh, what we would now call a media firm in New York. And... Um, um, but I, 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 you know, I, I, I decided that I would give it a, a try. I didn't really want to go, but I tried for a year and it, and it didn't work out. And I was doing so many things. Um, what I needed at that time was something we would call like a gap year or mm-hmm. internship that did not exist at that time. Had it existed, I would have done that and probably gone back, but that was not an option. And so, um, when I dropped out, they actually weren't either surprised or concerned. Their their major concern was I was the oldest of five kids, only five years apart, one year apart each. Oh wow! They were concerned about the, <laughs> the about the influence on that I would have on the other kids, right? On my brothers and sisters, and um, as it turned out, they all went on good through college, and um, so that wasn't a cons- they didn't really have much concern with me. Because, um, you know, I was doing so many things and, you know, uh, pretty self-motivated that they, they knew. That, 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 that I think their concerns were more like, you know, going into Afghanistan and to the Himalayas just in terms of my safety. Right. Um, and because, you know, news from... Back then was pretty um, scarce, and um, my brother, my second brother, who did uh, go to college, did wind up traveling later on after college, even more than I did. And um, there was a moment when my parents got a postcard from me in India, my brother in I think Bolivia, saying he had hepatitis. Oh, and no. So, um, so I think that's the kind of thing that they were concerned about. <laughs> um, and you know, at that time, there were there were even you know harsher things than hepatitis about. Um, so slightly so, slightly uh, more concerning than finishing a college degree. I yeah, guess. exactly. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you know, getting malaria, or yeah. whatever, which were were distinct possibilities. Um, so, so the, in general, just to answer your question, I, I, I yeah, I, I, I think if we were kind of hanging around doing nothing, but. What what Asia was for me was like a graduate degree in how the world works and Asian studies. I I, I mean I basically gave myself a doctorate in Asian studies because right. there was just so much and we were learning so much and and, and they were very I think very happy that um, I you know was uh, you know doing these things and they were in some senses and proud because um, again in the early 70s 60s and 70s um it was very very rare for people to get to these kind of places uh, even people with money and um it wasn't like today where people 
you know, fly off to Bali. Uh, and, and so this, this, they, they were kind of proud that, you know, I was doing these things and getting to see these things and recording them on my, on, on film. And so, um, uh, I think they kind of intuitively understood the, the larger benefits that mm. you'd get from that, from not just being there, but having accomplished that. And so, um, I mean, it took, it took a little bit of extra gumption and go how to, 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 to arrive there and survive there and come back. And, and, and they didn't give me any money. I mean, I, I did this all on my own and I earned my own money and uh, paid for my way and paid for everything. So I think they were, you know, they were proud. And, and I think even today when it's a lot easier, uh, we should definitely um, give points to people for for you know traveling in places that they're not familiar with, um, because it 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 does require uh, a certain amount of ambition to, to go and do that. Absolutely, I think that the life skills uh, it, it are just invaluable, and and even. Uh, and you've, you've, I think you've talked about this before. You know, I have very young, I have three very young kids. Uh, my oldest is only three and a half. But even for her, when we go traveling somewhere outside of her comfort zone, you know, even to Singapore or somewhere close, you can see the changes. The, you know, she matures. It's like a, a, a level she steps up each each trip that we take, and it's very noticeable. Uh, and I guess it's because you're being pushed out of your comfort zone and, and having to adapt. So um, now how how did that translate into your children? I mean, did they, were, were they able to, uh, <laughs> this is a large conversation about, you know, it could spiral into a large conversation. But, you know, my concern is the future of education. And, um, you know, I, I living in Hong Kong, there's education is one of these things where it's it's kind of like New York City, I guess, or, or any major city where all the kids want to go to the most prestigious, best schools, and there's only a handful of slots, and so it creates a very strange dynamic. What are your thoughts on the value of even going to a traditional uh, educational institution such as you know high school or college, yeah. even? Well, when it came to our own kids, we have three. Um, of course, th- my wife and I have been married for 30-some years. We agree almost everything. The one place we have a little disagreement is on education. Mm. She's Chinese, mm. and so she has a very um, traditional must-do attitude about it, and she has multiple you know, degrees, and she's a, a scientist and picked her way very early on. Um, but what we kind of compromised – what I what I told the kids is um, you don't need to go to college, but you do need after you graduate from high school to be doing something where where you're learning something, and that could be traveling around the world, it could be interning somewhere, working on a project, but you have to have something structured, some form of of what you're doing, and come back and tell us, and we'll support you, and then co- come back and tell us about what you're doing. If you can't think of something like that, then you have to go to college. Mm. And um, so that for them, for, I, I pose it as kind of like um, a second choice. Uh, and f- they all did eventually. They, they did not go out on their own. They, they actually just referred to go to college, and that was the, the deal. 
Um, so I think still it's up to the individual. I think if you are a self-motivated person and can um, arrange your your day so that you are optimizing your learning and whatever it is, then you don't really need college. Um, if you are not that kind of person where you need a, a extra incentive and motivation to complete things, then having an inst- institution and teachers on the side are a good idea. Um, and, uh, or some combination of the two. Right. Um, so, uh, I, I, the one thing I do kind of get a little worked up by is the focus on what I called, um, uh, elite branded colleges. Right. So, so I find that they're completely vastly overrated. And, um, if you do decide to go, um, you, you know, if you can get into an elite branded, why not? But, but, uh, it, 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 it's really misguided in many ways, and if you're really concerned about optimizing your learning, you probably would do better in one that doesn't have such a coveted brand. Um, you'll get a lot more personal attention, and um, probably come out the better for it. So, uh, you know, it's just like brands and anything else. Uh, there's a lot of hype. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's, you know, branded jeans is like, yeah, um, it depends on what the brand is, but I think if you're going, if you're showing off uh, just for status, then um, that's really not the best way to do an education, although, you know, I understand why people might want to get in, and if you do get in, fine, but it, understand that it's almost a lottery at this point. Talk to any admissions uh, persons in those highly um, sought after colleges and they will tell you that basically it is uh, you know 95 percent of the people who are applying are would be qualified right and they can make a class out of that but they're doing all this kind of very esoteric balancing and whatnot and it's and it's really um, it, it's it's a it's a kind of a meaningless game at this point yeah it sounds like a lot of shenanigans Um well, I, I like that. I like that uh, that you gave colleges the backup if to the ch- children if if uh, if they didn't have a a better uh, option. I may have to I may have to use that yeah. one uh, in 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 ten or fifteen years time. Thank I would you. have. I would have. I, yeah, I would have preferred if they didn't. But, right. but if they didn't, they they really did need to have a a program um, where they were doing things, and I think. You know, it, it really does depend on the, some kids. You know, need the incentive and the guidance. I guess I would say of others. They're not going to be able to do a year of their own independent work and really stick to it. Um, so, so uh, you kind of have to be ready for this. You know, maybe some homeschoolers might be able to do that. But then the problem with homeschoolers is they don't even have a. They usually want the experience of having um, organized education after, you know, eight, 12 years of being at home. Right. So um, they usually go the other direction. Um, but I do recommend actually homeschooling. We did homeschool our son for a year, and that was a blast. Um, and it really helped him later on. He he needed it at that moment. And uh, if that's something you can swing 
um, it, it's very rewarding for everybody involved. You know, I we my wife's one of my my wife's closest friends has three kids, and she actually homeschools her kids, and um, and also travels extensively with the kids. Yeah which yeah. I think is fantastic because she's not tied down to any sort of school schedule. My only yeah. concern with the homeschooling, uh, and I told my wife this, was I'd, I feel insecure that I'd be able to <laughs> provide them the instruction or curriculum. or And I don't know how these things work. I, you know, I'm sure there's courses that you follow. And this there sort of are so many stuff. Khan Academy, um, which we used... Uh, a lot of homeschool textbooks. There was there was there's textbooks that are kind of um, uh, engineered with the homeschooler in mind. Mm. There's no end of of curricula stuff, and the um, the other things that you would do actually in the end are more important. I I, I think um, there's really only one meta skill that you want to impart kids, and when they by the time they graduate, and that is the um, skill that the, the uh, Ability to learn how to learn, they, mm-hmm. because you're going to you're going to be we're all going to be newbies forever. They're going to be having to learn new things. It doesn't matter kind of what computer language you teach them, whatever. That's going to be obsolete very quickly. The the facts they can look up, they can Google, you can ask a machine for answers. Um, but that skill of learning how to learn and have that love of learning and how to ask questions, all these kinds of things, that is the, really the only important thing that they need to have. And I think these other kinds of activities um, that you're doing would re, are really the, are, are much stronger um, accelerants in, in learning those skills. Right. Uh, and the, you know, the teaching, the calculus, whatever it is, it's like that is just such... A minor thing compared to these other things. We we actually, in our son eighth grade, we actually hired a professor, of a mathematic professor at the local university to come to the house to tutor him in math, nice. and that was like completely affordable. And if, have, and if you have more than one kid, those kinds of deals are actually far cheaper than a private school and so um uh you know the, the that kind of stuff you can hire out as part of your homeschooling mix right that's 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 interesting to me um oh so i guess i guess um at some point you i I'm, i imagine it's because of your work at wired uh magazine but you have uh become sort of this uh authority uh, on technology and the future, a futurist, if you will. Uh, I believe one of the books that you wrote um, uh, earlier on sort of was translated into Chinese and, and has a sort of viral following. Uh, maybe you could talk about that and, and that experience. Yeah, I've written, I think, well, I've written, depending on how you want to count them, at least four books, but more that I have written parts of for I've written all of and um, the first book that I wrote which was published in the US in 94 1994 was called Out of Control and it was an early um, roundup of all the ways in which 
technological systems were coming very, very complex and were mirroring the complexity of biological systems. So I, it was a book that talked about like beehives and the internet and how evolution worked in uh, natural world and how artificial evolution could work in the in, on machines and computers and it was the kind of very beginnings of the internet and I, and I talked about decentralized systems and how they would work and so in many ways it was kind of an attempt to talk about this organic mm, internet like thing that was hap- that was beginning to be born and um, in the US it came the book was published a little too early people weren't they didn't really kind of get what we were talking, what I was talking about. But in China, it was translated late. It was translated just five years ago, I think, <laughs> and it came out at the right time as the Chinese internet um, founders were founding their own companies of like Alibaba and Tencent, and they read the book in translation, and they were very influenced by it. it kind of, kind of like laid out the power of how you have social networks and right. and network effects and all this kind of stuff. And so they were very influenced by it and they shared their, they were fans of it. And so it spread in, in that way. And, um, I wrote a follow up book called the new rules, the new economy, which came out unfortunately in the U S right at the dot, com bust <laughs> people thought thought i was talking about the dot com companies but i was talking about the new internet economy which later came and it was this the online world and i was trying to talk about the, the new principles like follow the free and freemium pricing and stuff mm-hmm, like that mm-hmm. um so that was also a little too early and um uh, my last, my, my second to last book was called What Technology Wants, which was a theory of how technology happens. And my theory was that it was a, an extension of the of evolution, the forces of evolution, that it was that operated very much like natural evolution did. And my, my and it was kind of a broad cosmic view. The the latest book, The Inevitable, which has also been translated into Chinese and became a bestseller there just this year, is about the next twenty to thirty years of technological evolution and, and its general trends or trajectories, just directions in a, in a broadest sense, not in the particulars of like whether Apple's going to work or not. Right. So, um, so yeah, so most of my fans are in China. I have a lot more fans in China than in the U S and, um, <laughs> that's just a quirk of, of the timing because being too early can be as bad as being too right. late. Right. I love that. That's that's so interesting. What what um, what are some of the broad strokes of uh, that you maybe could share with us from the inevitable, which um, you know obviously was a New York Times bestseller last year, and it's having great success in in the global markets. Um, what, what what are some of the things that we can look out for on a on a broad basis uh, in the future? Well, I, I there there are twelve. Trends or directions I talk about in the book, and they're all labeled as verbs. You know, they're kind of um, I think they're called present participles. They're they're, they're movements. <laughs> and and um, uh, what, what I'm saying is kind of like all things being equal, it's going to move in this direction. It's not, there's no endpoints, but there's going to be more and more 
filtering our lives will have more and more tracking no matter what else happens there will more of our lives will be tracked there'll be more and more uh, flows of, of data and they and they tend to flow rather than be you know th- things are kind of like moving from being solid to 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 liquid verbs to to things that, that move to processes so instead of having a product you're going to have a service mm. instead of having a noun you're going to have a verb um, so so there was this movement away from the tangible to the intangible and there's this movement from owning things to accessing things if you can if you can um, grab or demand or get something anywhere anytime right uh, and then leave it behind. Why would you want to own it? So the, the the virtues and benefits of ownership diminish, and the virtues and benefits of accessing something you don't own increases. And so there's these trends. And then behind all of it is this larger trend of this cognifying of making things smarter, particularly artificial intelligence, making things very very smart, making everything a little bit smarter, and some things very smart, and that. Cognification is, in some ways, the um, the enabling technology, the technology that enables all these other things to happen, and is, in my opinion, the foremost, greatest uh, change force that's going to be at work in the twenty to thirty and beyond period. Um, that the not over on the longer term of 50 to 100 years, this is going to be the equivalent of, of the Industrial Revolution right. uh, and artificial power, which, which transform our lives, so the you know, electricity and, and you know coal and gasoline and all that artificial power, which we added to our own natural power, natural muscle power, um, transformed our where you live, everything you see or surrounding you, whatever the listener sees, it's all been generated by having access to this artificial power which became cheap and ubiquitous and as we make artificial intelligence in many many varieties many types many kinds none of it really like human intelligence all of it very different but that artificial intelligences that artificial smartness is going to impact all aspects of our lives from sports to religion food clothing education military business and um it's going to uh have a huge uh impact through billions of people and that's already beginning right now we, we see the first this first wave of it yeah. of many waves to come and um so i'm trying to describe a little bit about some of the ways that the initial the second and third, some of the some of, some of the things that will change our lives in the second and third ways are these. Fascinating. How about China specifically? You know, I uh, China is one of these these things that, you know, I'm sitting right next door here in Hong Kong, and the speed in which just things are changing uh, across the border is uh, I can't even keep up with it. Um, and I think it's I think when you say China. Uh, if you're from the West, you kind of have this uh, strange uh, notion. It's kind of like this far-off land, uh, but you can't ignore it because it's obviously on the trajectory to taking over the U.S., uh, if not already by some metrics uh, or standards. Um, 
and it's just exciting what's happening over there. You know, I just got my, I'm a U.S. citizen, but I just got my 10-year visa. I didn't even know they yeah. had them, but uh, they do. And, That's uh, a secret. Yeah, it's a secret. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, what do you think, Kevin, on what's the future of China that, like, anything that, obviously, it's growing and, and it's going to change the world, so to speak, uh, with all the innovation that's happening. Any any talking points off the top of your head that you can well, clearly define? So, so the first thing I would say about China is anything you want to say about China is going to be true. It is so vast that even the Chinese don't really understand what's going on. That's that's the thing. There there is it's it's vast and it's fast. And so while as Americans feel like I have no idea what's going on, well the Chinese have the same thing. Like here you are in Hong Kong and you don't feel like you can really understand the, the extent of everything and you can't. There's it's beyond a person, it's beyond institutions. So um and and the and the, the not just the speed, but the the distance, because you know you have you have parts of China that are you know still medieval, and next door or the next town is this futuristic town. So the the distance that's being traveled is also vast, the distance in time. So um, so yeah. So while there's the most amazing and futuristic stuff, you know, on the other side of the country is. You know, it's it's, it's it's stuff that hasn't changed in a long time, and that that that's all happening at once. So anything you want to say about China is probably true, and um, uh, <laughs> I I you know go there to see what's in store for us because the arithmetic is just in the favor of China and say in India together. There's three billion. People compared to 300 million in the U.S. I mean, it's 10 times, mm. and so um, um, I think my own estimation that like, you know China is maybe five to 10 years uh, till they reach a threshold where they actually produce a truly global product that everybody in the world wants. You know. Not just for internal uh, consumption, but they actually are able to make a, a brand, make a something that everybody wants. Maybe it's an electric car, or maybe it's a self-driving car, or maybe it's a robot. I don't know what it is. It's something that everybody in the world wants, and it's considered the best there is. Right. And so, um, you know, right now they're still like in a copy culture, as Japan was for a very long time. And then Japan broke out and they started to make, you know, the Sony Walkman or the cameras and things right. that everybody wanted and they made the best. Um, I think China is, is nearing that moment. And well, I think there's still, a, there are a couple of things actually that that might actually be there, like so, something like a, the DJI drone. I think that's pretty world class, no? Drone, right. Yeah. yeah. And that's exactly. over in Shenzhen, right. yeah. Especially the little one. Yeah, the Maverick, and now the new Spark. Actually, my son interned at DJI. Oh, really? Um, wow. Yeah, at the uh, they set up an annex in San Mateo, and he was involved in starting up their um, their place in the U.S. So, uh, yeah, I, 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 they, they, yeah, I think, but, but not everybody in the world wants. I mean, it's like not. That's still a so. 
it, it, it is uh, state of the art. It is the best, but uh, it's not quite um, consumer level mm. at, at this point. Um, but that's a good indication of of how um, close they are. There's the guys at Ehang doing the personal passenger drone, right? Uh, which parallels the people at Kitty Hawk doing the Google folks doing theirs, and there's ten others. But the the the, the thing is, I'm trying to say is, I think they are they the, the country as a whole is um, getting close to the point where they can um, ha- have an ongoing, consistent uh, delivery of, of, of goods. And I think there's a couple cultural um, improvements, cultural changes mm-hmm. that um, are working on. One is the, a little wider acceptance of failure um, as, a, as a means of learning, fast fa- yeah. failing forward, yes. rather than being penalized for failure, which is still a little bit here, a little bit present. And then um, the questioning authority, questioning assumptions and authority, which is still a little difficult to do, um, both in terms of the education patterns and also the political pattern. So I think um, those will take a long time, but we know just from – Chinese expats and the number of Chinese working over in the U.S. and Silicon Valley that there's nothing really deeply um, uh, impossible about those things because Chinese scientists and engineers in the U.S. are fantastically creative and uh, innovative. And so, and, and so there's there's not a huge barrier to do that. It's just it's just it's just a it's just a very deep, widespread cultural thing that has to – they'll take a generation or so to, to, to overcome. But, but, I, but uh, anyway, so, so once that happens, my gosh, I think um, um, it'll be a very – it'll be, it'll be kind of a, a new world when um, there's a lot of innovation coming out of um, China and maybe eventually India. Uh, and and that will accelerate the way things go, but also change the dynamics. I think of uh, of um, the economies and um, the political um, structure. So um, uh, there's going to be a lot of shifting. I think uh, Americans. I think this Trump is an exhibit of the last gasp of an America that's. No longer, and um, part of it is this industrial model that's gone, and the identity of a lot of older workers of mm. who they were, and um, the image of the new Americans as much more multiracial and a lot of more minorities, right. and where the U.S. is not uh, the only superpower in the world. Um, th- that is psychologically a very difficult thing to accept. And so I think um, we're seeing some of the pain of that right now. But I, I think it's going to take a whole generation to uh, to overcome. I, I think I find it fascinating when you when you talked about what seems to me a very uh, characteristic of Asian culture, which is the two those two points that you said, the fear of failure. Uh, Asians, particularly, they have this whole 
have to save my face. Uh, I right. can't, I can't look vulnerable type mentality, right. which really, really impedes innovation. Uh, absolutely. Because we all know that you have to fail to, to, to succeed eventually. Um, so yeah. I, I, I think, I think you're right, Kevin. I think in, in a ge- generation's time when that is become accepted as, as part of the, the rite of passage, then, then we could see quite an explosion of, of innovation uh, thereafter. Um, last sort of topic that I want to uh, talk about with you, uh, since I have you on, is uh, is actually about an article, a very sort of viral, famous article that you wrote called A Thousand True Fans. And for listeners listening in, if you haven't read it, it's, it's probably uh, worth reading uh, over at, at Kevin's website. Can you... Give us five minutes, the, sh- the quick and dirty of your idea behind uh, Thousand True Fans. Um, the the premise is kind of uh, some sleight of hand with with some numbers, and it says basically that um, uh, in the new environment, in the new economy, that if you can have a direct relationship with your customers, with your fans, with your audience, um, and they can pay you directly for whatever it is you provide them. Say you're, you're a creator, you're you know, a filmmaker, a musician, photographer, sculptor, game maker, whatever. Uh, and you can have your audience pay you directly that you need a whole lot less of a fan base to, to make a living than you would if in the old uh, world of uh, media where you had um, book publishers and mm. music labels and movie studios in between you and them and um, that you know the numbers work out like you know if you could sell these true fans and I defined a true fan as somebody who would buy whatever you produced if if you could sell them, you know, a hundred dollars worth of stuff a year, then you'd only need a, a thousand of them to make a living. Or you know, maybe it's only fifty dollars, but then you need two thousand. But the order of magnitude is roughly in the thousands. Instead of thinking that you need millions to to survive, to make a living as an artist or as a creator, um, in the past you did need to make millions because there was all these other people and intermediaries involved um, that were consuming what people were giving you but if you have direct connection with them with like social media or with email or mailing list and of course these days with like crowdfunded um, crowdsource funding where you actually have people connecting and paying you directly for something then that reduces the numbers to a much more manageable in the thousands and a thousands is a lot more achievable, even thinking about it, than like I need to have a million hit bestseller to make a living doing this. Right. So, um, so I emphasize that this is making a living, not making a fortune. And um, the numbers are a little, you know, depending on where you live, and if you have more people, if you have a partner, you have to, you know, divide by two or multiply by two. Um, and that. Uh, also, that it, it's it's a at least a halftime job for the creator uh, um, to maintain these kind of um, this kind of audience, and so some people, some artists, some creators, 
inventors just aren't really made and don't really want to do that mm. stuff with the fans and and so they you know they need to have someone else and so you, you have to change your numbers there um but because it does require um a lot of nurturing and feeding but if you're willing to and it's a good way to start um to feed your fans that you only need a thousand ish true fans and then there's all these uh, kind of you know regular fans who will buy some of your things but if you could have a if you can have a thousand and finally the thing about the thousand is is that um the other thing the internet technology does is it connects basically everybody on this planet and you know that's several billion people and headed towards multi-billion people mm. which means that um uh, even if you are interested in something that we're only one in a million people are also going to be interested in it, you still have, with a couple billion people, thousands of potential fans. So the most esoteric, the most obscure, the most niche passion that you have, you today have the potential of finding at least a thousand other people who share that. So that's really good news for everybody because it means that um, um, your passion can probably make you a living if you wanted it to. That it, It's a great article for <laughs> anyone listening, and I highly recommend it, especially if you're, uh, you know, kind of an entrepreneur or a small business owner. I think it's, it's uh, very valuable. Um, Kevin, it's been such a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for your time. What are you working on uh, this year? You mentioned that Asia is, is kind of your focus now. What are you working on, and where can people find you, follow you, and connect with you? Yeah, um, let me just answer the last, because that's really all I have time for. I can be found at my initials, kk.org. Uh, I'm working on a book about vanishing Asia, and... Um, uh, my latest thing is a newsletter that I do with Mark Freundfelder and Claudia at Cool Tools is we send out six brief, really brief recommendations every week, every Sunday on a one-page email uh, called Recommendo with 1M, recommendo.com. Sign up and you'll get six recommendations for us every week. And those so are I really... Yeah, those are like the cool tools type recommendations. Cool uh, tools. There are tips. There are tips. Uh, stuff that we listen to, watch, read, ah, okay. uh, eat. It's other things and tools, though occasionally there are some tools. But it's just things that we recommend um, and we use ourselves. Um, so I want to thank you f um, for having me. Um, it's really been great, uh, Jay, that uh, you had me on, and I'm, I'm really glad to share some of my stories in Asia. I would love uh, talking about it more. Absolutely. Um, but I hope, I hope I was useful, and um, I appreciate being asked. Definitely, definitely. Thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. And, uh, and yeah, guys, uh, go sign up for Kevin's newsletter, uh, his new newsletter, Recommendo. That's right? Okay. okay. Yep. Great. Thanks. Fantastic. Thanks, Kevin. Bye. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. All the show notes and links can be found over at jkimshow.com. Come back often and make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. Don't forget to join us next week for another exciting episode of The J. Kim Show. I'd love to hear your comments. You can find me on Twitter at jkimmer, J-A-Y, 
K-I-M-M-E-R. See you guys next week. This podcast is brought to you by Hack Your Fitness, the high achiever's guide to getting ripped in under three hours a week. If you're anything like me, you're probably working a full-time job or jobs and trying to find time to balance family life, social life, and last but not least, fitness. Look, I get it. I'm a full-time investor and entrepreneur myself and father of two. So how am I able to stay fit year-round without spending hours and hours in the gym killing myself on the cardio machine? After struggling for the last 15 years trying every workout and diet under the sun, I finally designed a system that allows me to achieve and maintain single-digit body fat for life in under 3 hours a week. Cardio not required. Head on over to hackyour.fitness and download my free 13-page guide that teaches you the simple science behind efficient fitness and smart nutrition and gives you everything you need to know to finally take control of your life. That's hackyour.fitness.